You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey, folks, with us today, Chris from Knapsack. Chris, super happy to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's stoked to be here. All righty, let's start with the most important thing. What problem does your company solve? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are all about the place where design and engineering meets. And so when you think about the need to scale the production process for, for digital applications, you have this, this problem that exists, particularly at large companies, where it's not about hiring more engineers or about hiring more designers. It's about how do we make those people work more effectively together. And there's always been this process in the, the production of a digital product where you go from something that is design, which is, is the realm of intent, into code, which is the realm of production. And that process is, has traditionally been really fraught and really difficult. And Knapsack helps make design to code easier, more efficient, and more scalable for big enterprise. Amazing. I would love to jump right into where it started because in 2017 to 2020, you had an agency which basically attacked the same problem. I would love for you to tell us a bit more about that and then how you turn being an agency owner into the actual SaaS company it is today. Yeah, sure. So it actually started a little before the agency. Um, I mean, as you can probably imagine, we had to have an idea before we had a, a company. True. Um, <laughs> My co-founder, Evan, and I, we, we used to work together at, at another you know, mid-sized digital agency. And in that place, we, we worked predominantly on CMS platforms. And so we worked with things like Drupal and WordPress and, and whatnot. And as a part of that process, we would build these platforms that were all about like, how do you create a scalable CMS across hundreds or thousands of sites? And that was really where we first experienced the pain of, of this issue, where you know, yes, you could have a common web platform like Drupal and you could run hundreds of sites on, on Drupal, but you still had this design to code problem that existed for every single site you did. And very often there was a blocker in that process that was, was about backend development. You had to have a CMS stood up and you had to have it producing uh, uh, some sort of HTML elements that you could then style. Um, and so what our systems-based approach sort of grew out of was this idea of how do you create an abstraction that you can sort of use to get a jump on front-end development before back-end development was ever, ever done with what they were working on. And so sort of born out of that pain, we started to create these abstractions that you could pass variables or properties to during build time and create multiple different websites using the same front-end code. Um, and so we didn't know at the time what this was called. We, we called it component-driven development. That phrase is not as fashionable anymore. Everybody talks about it in terms of design systems these days. And so when we started Basalt, the, which was the name of our agency, um, that agency was really focused on how do we build these, these highly customized systems that operate at scale um, that let people effectively have an abstraction of their UI that they can then um, use for any product in their ecosystem. Who was the typical uh, customer back when you had the agency? 
So it was still big enterprise predominantly. I mean, that's who we were used to selling to. Like, uh, uh, you know, Evan and I together, we built we built um, websites for Major League Soccer, for Johnson & Johnson, for Estee Lauder, Red Hat, like all the big enterprise companies. And so, you know, if there was a website in media or tech that you'd, you'd visited, um, you know, we'd probably had a hand in that in, in some way. And so scale is kind of what we were used to. And so we pretty much worked with large enterprise from the jump. Um, and so uh, most of those organizations were at some stage of already having a system. Um, but our sort of specialty was being able to make them function at scale. So instead of just having the ability to use a system for one team or one product, we could roll it out to your entire ecosystem. And, and that's what people like, kind of loved us for as an agency. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you a boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast-growth startups. Get a 14-day risk-free trial and a transparent price of $95 per hour. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. Okay, and then how did you make the, I mean, nowadays you're venture-backed, you're close to 30 employees, but how did you initially get the software off the ground, basically? So, um... I mean, COVID was really a big part of it. Like it was kind of our, our COVID silver lining is, um, you know, we had a fair amount of booked work um, as an agency and we were, you know, around a dozen people. And then COVID happened and um, most of our work went away. We got 30 days on a lot of our contracts so that people would say like, hey, you know, um, huge amount of uncertainty, big world changing event. Uh, we're just going to stop working with our agency partners. And we'd been exploring the idea of a product um, before that, but this was was the the burn the ships moment, so to speak, um, where you know there was really no going back. We we weren't making enough money as an agency to really sustain ourselves, and um, we took a, a PPP loan from from the federal government and used that to to keep folks employed. And with a bunch of bench time and this desire to build a product in the space that was that was sort of our our way of getting launched um but you know it, it was a little bit deeper than that in that when we were out in the agency land exploring what sort of products um to attach ourselves to um you know we had had been very involved in the open source project pattern lab for a long time and that had its shortcomings most most present of which was it was based in in php um, and then the second side of it was we, we started working with Envision on the design side using Envision DSM. And there were obvious shortcomings there because if you were an engineer, that product was certainly not for you. And then we also contributed reasonably heavily to Storybook. And we'd all used Storybook previously. Um, we all loved Storybook. But the problem with Storybook was is if you were anything other than a developer, it wasn't something you necessarily wanted to use in your daily workflow. And so we kind of started with this principle that, that everything has to be based in structured data. Everything has to work for both designers and engineers. And everything also has to support product creation at scale. And so that was the, the sort of origin idea for Knapsack as, as first principles. And that's what we set off to build with that PPP loan. We had some initial ideas of, of where the direction was going to head with that. But it was really that time period from about uh, May of 2020 until September that we really kind of got our legs under us in terms of a product. Um, and then, yeah, raised some money and now here we are. 
So you really made the best out of that not so happy start with with COVID then. It was wild, right? We we got a little bit lucky in that um, our office lease happened to be up um, <laughs> in in May of that year, and so we were able to to not renew our office lease, and we sold all our office furniture, and you know that paid for like a month or two of runway. Um, you know, we had some some friends and family that really believed in us, and so we raised some money from our friends. My my parents put in some money. Um, a couple of employees put in money. And so that was sort of what sustained us until I was able to go out and get institutional capital. We had no idea if it was going to work. I mean, sitting down in, in June and July, there were some, some pretty scary moments there where, you know, we didn't really have a product. We, we had the beginnings of a product um, and a really good idea, but we had very few customers, very little money coming in the door. And it was kind of like, all right, how do we get to a point where we can actually try this dream out? And um, you know, an, another funny day that'll live in infamy, um, you know, January 6th, 2021 is when we got funded. Um, and so we were watching the, the riot happening in Washington while, while closing our round. Um, so we have this like weird sort of historical markers associated with our company's progress. I mean, as we see now, it makes at least for a great start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's one of the things that Evan, my co-founder always jokes about is like, whenever we're in this period of adversity and we're both just like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? He's always like, well, what we're going to do is, is in about five years, we're going to write a book about this. Sounds like a fair plan. But then, then let, let's maybe switch a bit from the, yeah, basically like from the company building side to more the, the tactical level. As one does, I stalked your website. So it's basically book demo only. So I assume that you go after at least mid-market or enterprise. Yeah. How does your go-to-market look like? Yeah, so so the self service demo is a, is a constant uh, question mark for us, and a big part of the reason why it's hard to say like go try Knapsack by clicking a button on our website is because we're really deeply integrated to code workflows, and so you know we connect to your Git provider, be that you know, GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket or whatever you have, and we work actually with your production code, and so. That typically requires more than a push button setup to, to be able to, to have that function. And so go to market for us is pretty heavily enterprise focused because that's where a lot of the pain is. Um, you know, Knapsack is great for a single team, single product, but it really shines when you have multiple products and multiple teams using the software in, in some sort of concert. And what that tends to look like is it tends to look like somebody that has a design and engineering problem. Be that on the design side, it's it's usually somebody that is um, a senior individual contributor that is like, hey, our design's a mess. We're having a hard time getting the stuff that we're building in Figma to actually look like production. Or it's an engineer that is like, our design files are all over the place. We can't get organized. Nobody knows what to build. Um, and the fidelity of what we're doing in design is in matching what we actually need to be able to build something in production. And those are the people we typically start. And those early conversations are all about how we solve that sort of system level pain. And then that usually moves on to um, somebody in product. And that person in product tends to be the um, lightning rod or focal point of that design to engineering handoff problem. Um, we have really, as uh, an industry, um, punished our product people with the need to unify design and engineering in one place. 
And um, oftentimes they're the ones that feel the, the pain most acutely. And so usually those product people are responsible for one or more products and one or more product teams. And that's who we were really able to show, hey, we can solve this design to code problem for you. And most of the time people don't believe us. Um, they say, uh, you know, first of all, hey, that's never a problem I thought I could ever solve. And then secondly, I didn't know you could solve that not just for one product, but for every product in my ecosystem. And so when we get a big customer that is looking at Knapsack really seriously, we tend to talk about the, the system, the design system as the strategic asset that is most valuable to their, their product production process. And that's what starts to sort of change people's minds. It's, um, it, it's not about just solving for design. It's not about just solving for engineering. It's about solving for the orchestration of your product efforts company-wide. Um, and, and statements like, you know, can you imagine if all your UI was unified into a single system, regardless of what language you're using, React or Angular, or Ember, or PHP or whatever, um, and then any team could pick that up, use it, and then also contribute to it and leave it better than one. And that tends to be a really powerful message. Interesting. And then how long are the sales cycles for something like that? Because it feels like you really have a ton of stakeholders you need to get aligned, basically, so that they move forward. Yeah, I mean, and every, everybody has veto power these days inside of big organizations. And so, um, you know, most of the time, our sales cycle is like four to eight months. And most of those organizations have been talking to us that enter our pipeline for about a year. And so, you know, it's all about timing is really the, the thing in market. Um, so at any given time, we're talking to a couple of dozen different organizations that are large enterprises about what we do, about our value, about how we show up for them. But for whatever reason, be it budget cycles or timeline or um, internal resource allocation, they're not ready yet. And so it's really our biggest qualification is around timing. Um, you know, are you going to pursue this? Is this a priority for this calendar year? Is this something that you're going to stand up inside of the next six months? And when people start to ask, answer yes to those questions, we know that they're already interested in Knapsack because they've seen a demo, they've played with the software, they've touched it. Um, but it's finally reached a point where they're, they're ready to move forward in some capacity, whatever that is. And that's usually when we know, um, you know we have a qualified uh, prospect that is really fundamentally interested in, in using our software. And then do you have quota carrying sales guys who run it or are you still running that yourself, you or your co-founder? Yeah, I mean, we have, we have uh, now two sales guys. And so it's, uh, you know, that early stage beginning of scale, right? So um, I have a go-to-market lead who is kind of like a co-founder. I mean, Andrew's been here for a very long time. And, um, you know, we trust him not just with, um, you know, top line revenue, but also supporting uh, customers and expanding customers. And so everything on sort of the go-to-market side of the house is, is his domain. And he does a lot of, of personal selling, as do I. Um, but we've really kind of figured out how to get account executives up and running. We figured out how our top of funnel looks for for that early nurture and customer acquisition all the way through qualification and now to close. And so we feel like we have a pretty predictable process for how we get these large enterprises to, to get signed up on Knapsack. And now it's about just beginning the early bits of scale there. How many people were you when you first hired the first uh, salesperson? 
So we were um, nine, I believe. Um, and honestly, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a blunder on our part. We, um, you know, we started hiring salespeople a little over a year ago and, um, we simultaneously paired that with a, a modification of, of our strategy. And then we thought about, you know, what did a self-service offering look like? What, what would it be like if people could spin up knapsack on their own? And it led to a pretty frustrating experience for users because of the problems I mentioned earlier. Like, okay, great. I have Knapsack connected to my Git repository, but I can't get my CI to work. Um, I can't get my software to build. And we would spend countless hours supporting customers, trying to get them to be able to build software on what was effectively like trying to be a self-service product, but wasn't. And we paired that with a sales motion that was intended to really like shepherd people across the line in more of a product-led capacity. Um, and it didn't work very well. And so about a year ago now, we, we changed that strategy and refocused on enterprise, um, rebuilt the sales and go-to-market team. And that's been very successful for us. It's, it's completely changed things around. For the people listening who might be in a similar situation, what do you think are the criteria of a product that is more, yeah, is a better fit for enterprise? Because yes, PLG is all the rage nowadays, self-service amazing, but I mean, for example, your solution is quite powerful, thus also quite complex. So now having like the the... The opportunity to look at to look at the hindsight. What what could have could you have seen earlier, which others who are in that spot might be able to see? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there were two parts to it. Right, is um, you know, go go where the pain is for your customers. Um, there was this this moment where I was actually walking around um, by the river in in Hood River, and my my um, you know my account executive called me. And he was like, you know, the problem that I keep having with these deals that we're doing for $10,000, dollars $25,000 is that the pain isn't really there. There's no urgency in these conversations. There's nothing that shows me that these people need this software and it's going to be priority one or priority two for them. And so that was a real kind of eye-opening moment where you know, I was like, okay, so, so my sales guy is telling me that our customers don't have enough pain. And salespeople are... are um, generally optimists about, um, you know, a customer being willing or, or wanting to buy. And so he's in all these different conversations and he's like, there's just not enough urgency in these, these chats. And so that was a big, you know, moment for me to realize that like, no, like we don't have the right market target. And then I'd say the, the second side of it is don't dogfight with your competitor. In, in early stage uh, uh, companies, there has to be room in the market, right? And, you know, we compete with folks like Supernova and Zero Height. And, um, you know, I generally like really wish them well because they're in a different part of the market than we are. We run into them competitively, but most of the time our real true competition is custom and it should be um, because that's the segment of the market that we want to target. And we've actually started as a part of our, our sales conversations Say like, hey, look, if you um, are just looking for a documentation solution or you're looking for uh, a multi-point solution um, or you don't have the, the amount of money to spend, like 50K plus that Knapsack really costs, here's our competitors. Go use them. They have a different product that has 
uh, uh, a different sort of scale to it and fits a different use case. And so that may be a better product for you. Um, and that, that serves two purposes that, that basically shows them that we understand our competition. Um, and it also shows them that we're different than them because our focus is that large enterprise customer that is going to have that complexity and that need to really um, build something for scale. How do you build the, like a very tactical question, how do you build the the lead engine in a way for your sales team? Meaning like the, the top of funnel first touch that an enterprise has with you is that via inbound and content, code output, how do you initially get in the conversation? Yeah, um, I mean, it's a largely ABM-based strategy. And so what we we tend to do is we tend to say like, all right, who are the right kind of customers for us to acquire? And we look at it usually around industry because it's easy to build like microsites and marketing content for, for an industry more than it is for every single company. Um, but that varies a little bit. And what we do is we tend to spin up um, microsites for each target in our ABM. And those microsites are relatively customized to the people that we're targeting. And then we do some list builds and some outbound. And, you know, there's this really cool AI enabled process that goes and you know, generates AI-driven emails to go convert people, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly what we're caring about is we're caring about generating interest. And so where we really measure success in top of funnel is conversions around content. And so the content that we're producing is stuff like our podcast. It's things like our, um, you know, the recent wrap we did around uh, Figma's config conference. And what people are trying to do is they're still trying to understand like what's what's standard operating procedure look like in, in building a design system or building a practice inside of my organization. And we tend to focus it on, on um, you know, more senior buyers. And so we're trying to put out content that is about strategy, content that's about um, strategic value, content so that's about So more on the VP level or what's like, what's the, the level or the hierarchy typically? Director and above. Um, because if people are ICs, they're going to find us. Like everybody that's out there Googling design systems platform that actually knows what the words design systems are, like that's, that's something that like they're innately going to find us. What we really want to try to do is we want to try to get those strategic buyers, the people that have um, the money and the, the political capital inside of organizations to make these larger organization buys. We want them to know who we are. And we also want them to understand why a design system is one of the most valuable things that they can invest in. It's makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I mean, this is the also sort of what sets us apart from the PLG side of things too, right? Like the, the dirty little secret of PLG is PLG actually requires a pretty big sales. Like, you know, you're, you're basically saying like, let's create our, or let, let's do our point of sale or the point that we engage in a sales process much, much earlier in a cycle. And that, that earlier push into that sales cycle means that you get a lot of at bats, but um, you know, your PLG motion uh, uh, has to be pretty refined to get that conversion up high enough that you don't have a bunch of salespeople basically like, you know, doing internal selling, internal selling to your, your potential PLG customers. And so there is a lot of investment in go-to-market that is required from a, a personnel standpoint to really drive early PLG. And so what's great is like with, with one salesperson effectively, And yes, a BD person and a marketing person too. But with a very small go-to-market team, the ability to target the right kind of enterprise accounts have a very high conversion rate and a very high win rate on those accounts. 
and then also be able to position ourselves where we're usually the only people in that sale. It's a pretty powerful motion. And the churn is way better compared to like mid-market or or the the SMBs. Exactly. And so we don't actually really have to worry about churn very much. I mean, you know, it's there, right? It's present. But it's definitely one of those things that most of the time what we're talking about in terms of like net dollar retention is something that's, you know, 140% plus because we have customers that use our software in some limited capacity, either as a a proof of concept or as a a long-term trial. And then they're willing to expand organization-wide after six months to a year. And so we get these awesome expansion opportunities within big customers because they've been able to use our software and we've proven the value out for them. Switching to today, what are the, like, what are you currently thinking and strategizing? What meaning, like, what is the next one step or two steps you're, you're planning on doing? Because I always love to talk about the, the big vision, but in the end, it comes down to, okay, what are we going to execute like next quarter, basically? So what's in your mind right now? So next quarter, we have a big focus on AI right now. Like everybody does, right? But hey, we're living in an AI-enabled world now as of, you know, nine-ish months ago. And so in, in that capacity, there's a lot around design system discovery that is really critical. So when you, you create a design system, you're basically creating a novel length work of content um, that doesn't really have a great table of context, contents or a really great index. Um, and so how do you have an AI assistant that you can ask questions about how you use your design system or what's in your design system? Um, how does that or a similar AI agent help you um, generate that content? So automatically document my props for me, um, automatically describe the do's and don'ts of a button um, or any common bit of UI. Uh, we all like to pick the button because it's a great punching bag. Um, And then there's another part of it that is about uh, uh, when you actually have that AI that's there, how do you actually get it to generate things based on the components that exist in your system? And this kind of goes from the the short term to the long term here. Um, When we talk about the ability to actually compose things with UI in a design system, what we're really talking about is being able to run a design process inside a code medium. The biggest weakness of something like um, uh, Figma and, and the biggest challenge I saw at Config um, was exactly what, what um, the CTO from, from 37Signals, or hey, um, name escapes me at the moment, uh, wrote in a post as a follow-up, is that no matter what, if we're designing in something that isn't the medium it's destined for, that isn't producing code that is usable in production, we're designing it in an abstraction. And there will always be a handoff process between that design effort and then something that actually creates the real product unless you're able to actually build and design in the same place. And that's what we ultimately want to get to with Knapsack is, is maybe not like to wholesale replace Figma, but to be able to run a design process in the medium it's destined. Let me use my coded components to actually construct something and build something. And in my opinion, that's an innately AI-enabled process. You need to be able to say um, like to an AI or to an agent, this is what I want to create and have it give you a starting place for that and then allow you to refine it from there. And that is this really powerful idea that we have that kind of represents the future of our company is what if instead of having to to have a better managed design decode handoff process, you didn't have to add that handoff process at all. And that's what we would definitely be the future as. 
how are you currently executing on that? Did you hire like an AI specialist or how are you making uh, that strategic move? Yeah, I mean, AI specialist is such a funny thing right now, right? It's like, yeah, like I mean, engineer, <laughs> et cetera, right? Hey, all this stuff is so new, but like, you know, and there's like 25 people in the world that, that actually really know what happens behind the scenes. Um, yeah, I mean, we have some great advisors um, and, and we, we know some folks at, at some of the big AI companies that we, we spend a lot of time talking with in a very academic context. Uh, about like, what is the future of user interfaces and stuff like that. But from a practical standpoint, we hired a couple of people that really love to tinker with AI and have spent a bunch of time doing things like creating, you know, AI-based robot assistants that walk around their house and talk to them or, you know, AI-modified Zoom backgrounds or, uh, you know, one of the favorite things is is um, one of our, our developers wrote a, a bot that fed the Design Systems podcast into it. And now I can respond to questions about the design systems podcast using my own voice, which is really creepy. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like that's the sort of experimentation that we need right now, right? It's, it's not about necessarily knowing the end state or end solution because I don't think that um, there's been enough time yet for this to percolate. But it's about experimenting with interesting directions and kind of seeing what works. And it's, it's the... Part of the company where I feel most like we're sort of wandering around right now, um, but that's okay. Like we need a good wander to get to the right solution here in product. Um, and in the meantime, we have a, a product that's that's selling well and doing really well based on on its current generation. And so we're in a really great spot where the company's growing. Um, there's people that find a lot of value in using Knapsack now, and then we're starting to build these incremental things on top of it that help connect people's workflows and make the things they need to do in design systems much, much easier um, while we experiment with this, this interesting future. I love that the vision is to go head to head against Figma in the enterprise. But before we wrap up, where can people find you and especially your, your podcast so that the people who really are into design systems can, uh, can get it? Yeah, so uh, uh, I spend some time on LinkedIn here and there. So Chris Strahl slash in slash or uh, LinkedIn slash in slash Chris Strahl. We will link that below. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And then at Chris Strahl on Twitter, though I'm, I'm not there as much as I used to be. Uh, the Design Systems Podcast uh, at the DS Pod. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, our, our website, knapsack.cloud and, and our LinkedIn page. Chris, it was a pleasure to have you on. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, Nicholas. This has been great. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.